Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking about 50 Shades of Green with the help of special guest Paul Eldrenkamp of Big Meister Design Build in Newton, Massachusetts. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Hey everyone out there, this is Tim Fowler and welcome to the Tim Fowler Show. Like I always say, keep those ideas coming in. I love to hear from people. We're currently looking for uh, guests that fall into the client range for remodeling companies that we can talk to about how great that company did and what some of the great things were. And we're also looking for trade contractors that service their contractors pretty well and maybe do some unusual or different things that are very effective. And so we'd love to have those uh, folks on. If you know anybody, please shoot me an email, tim at remodelersadvantage.com. So like many of the guests that we have on the show, um, I've met many of them through the trade shows that I've been to over the years. And the guests today I've met uh, through the Journal of Light Construction show up in Providence, originally in the Boston area and then in Providence. And he's, he's presented often there. And then I think the last show that we actually had in person, one of his employees actually uh, did a presentation there. So the company's keeping up uh, the help to uh, the industry. Uh, the guest, this guest is always uh, given uh, and helped a lot of people. Another thing that I really appreciate about him is a great, great sense of humor. Uh, and maybe it's a little dry like mine. So we, we're able to uh, just laugh and, uh, and chat. In fact, one of the instances was an article he wrote that called Bonus by Whimsy, and I'm hoping I can get him to share a little bit about that uh, toward the end of the podcast. But for today's podcast, uh, we're talking to him about green building. Uh, he was one of the early adopters, at least from my vantage point, when I started hearing about green. And I thought it'd be fun to uh, have a conversation about the green movement, where it came from, where it's been, all those kinds of things. So. Uh, I'm excited about about that. So, hence the title, Fifty Shades of Green. And uh, Steve, let's go ahead. All right. So, Paul Aldrincamp is the founder and project manager of Big Meister Inc. in Newton, Mass. Paul founded the company in 1983 and will remain the owner until May of 2021. He was the first certified passive house consultant in New England in 2008. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks very much, Steve and Tim. So give us a little more information about, about your business. And, um, and, and if you don't mind, would you just tell us a little bit about the transition? It, 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 it said, you know, owner till May 2021. I assume someone else is taking over? Yes, I'm, uh, we're uh, converting to a worker-owned co-op, and I'll be selling to the, uh, the worker-owned co-op. So the employees are buying it out, basically. Oh, cool. So is it a design build or what's the nature of the business itself? It, uh, since the year 2000, we've been design build. So we, um, we do all the design, 
we do all the construction. All right, great. So how many people are in the company? Right now it's 15. 15, okay, good. All right, so let's start, let's talk about green. Like when did green really get started? What was it, is there a, a time frame or is there sort of a spot in history where people really started caring about, you know, building these houses where they don't burn up quite so much energy? Yeah, mostly the origins are in the mid-70s after the first uh, first Arab oil embargo and uh, fuel prices were skyrocketing. People started getting more and more interested in, in, uh, in, uh, in particular in reducing the, uh, the heating energy to a certain extent the cooling energy, but in those days mostly it was a, a heating climate endeavor. People experimented with passive solar for a while. There was a, you know, a d kind of an ongoing debate whether you focus more on super insulation and air sealing or you focused more on, on passive solar techniques, you know, solar orientation, lots of glass. We ended up with a lot of really, uh, really bizarre looking structures from that day. Also, we ended up with a lot of structures that just didn't function that well, like double you know, uh, envelope enclosures, essentially, you know, which was a house within a house where you were trying to uh, uh, circulate air around the inner house. A lot of failures um, over time. Um, it's become clear that the high air ceiling, you know, good air ceiling, high levels of insulation is really, really the way to go. You know, good, good glass and good uh, window orientation can definitely help. Definitely is a big factor, but uh, for the most part, it's, uh, uh, you know, build it tight, build it well insulated, put in a really good mechanical system, including um, well-designed ventilation, um, and uh, be careful about your material choices. So when did, one of the things I was wondering was, when did the code requirements start catching up with what people were already doing in terms of, you know, like people like yourself were already building uh, better insulated homes, I believe. And then the codes, uh, I, I think, you can tell me if I'm crazy, but the, didn't the codes take a little while to catch up to that? Or maybe they haven't. You know, it's interesting. The codes, the codes have always lagged behind what um, people are able to build cost effectively. But, you know, it takes a while for the, the industry as a whole to, to, um, to adopt those techniques, you know, those higher performance building techniques. You know, the, the, uh, the first sort of code improvements started happening in the 90s, and then they've really picked up steam since then. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got some, you know, there's always a tension between the industry and the codes. Yes. Um, when, I, when I say the industry, I mean the, you know, uh, uh, the prevailing attitude. Uh, I mean, you you know, the, as we all are aware, our industry, remodeling industry, new home construction are, are pretty fragmented and you have people <laughs> all over the place. And it's also very climate specific in a, in a country. You know, we're in a big country with a lot of different needs. But, um, but you know, right now, the, I, think, uh, I think a lot of contractors, I think many contractors are coming to understand that higher performance uh, retrofit techniques, higher performance new construction techniques are, are basically just good business. You know, yeah. it's good, 
they're comfortable houses, fewer callbacks. It's a good risk management strategy, and it's it's you know it's uh, the wave of the future. Tighter codes are coming. We might as well get ahead of the curve now. Yeah. So, so how would you define building green? Uh, what you know, because what you just mentioned is pretty pretty accurate in the fragmentation in the industry and. You know, I might say, hey, I'm, I'm a green builder and maybe I really don't do much more than do the energy, you know, the, the uh, insulation codes, right, or something like that. So how would you, you know, define the difference between sort of a normal standard contractor and a green builder? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for a long time, the, the green building movement was... Uh, was more uh, more marketing than uh, than <laughs> than substance, and and in large part that was because uh, people were not measuring much. You know, to really to be really to be green, uh, you have to be able to quantify. You know, if you're not measuring, if you're not setting quantifiable goals, you can say whatever you want. I know because, you know, for the first 20 years, I was a green remodeler. I was saying whatever I wanted, you know, <laughs> but then I eventually learned, you know, that really to have an impact, I had to start measuring. So from a remodeling, and, and that's how you decide what your, what your green line in the sand is, so to speak. So the, the things we started measuring were, um, you know, and again, this is from a remodeling perspective, but you can do similar things from a new home perspective, but the things... We, 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 try, we developed five criteria. You know, energy usage, you know, what's compare the post-project energy usage with the pre-project energy usage. Water usage, um, also pretty easy to quantify. Um, where uh, durability was another. How long do you expect components to last and how long do they actually last? Um, air quality was another one that uh, initially was pretty tough to measure, still pretty hard to measure, but there's more and more, more and more uh, fairly low cost, pretty reasonably accurate air quality monitors that you can buy. And um, so you're, you're looking to make sure that um, you're not uh, doing any harm, so to speak, and that you are making measurable improvements in the air quality, you know, typically as measured by, uh, carbon dioxide levels, which is a pretty good proxy for indoor pollutants. Uh, VOCs are, are another good um, proxy. And then particulates like 2.5, PM 2.5 is a particular particulate size that, of real interest. And then the fifth criteria was size. And uh, that's, the, that's the line in the sand that uh, most, is most frequently washed away by the incoming tide. You know, we, we, what it means for us is that we try to avoid additions. You know, if, if there's four people living in a 2,000 square foot house, we like to think that we can work with the existing house. You know, do, do a better job on the existing house rather than sort of dilute the remodeling dollars by putting an addition on and leaving some flaws in the existing house. But, but you know, I will be honest, it can be tough to hold that line in a lot of houses. Um, yeah, it seems like, I mean, in the community where I live, it seems like people, you know, buy small, tear down, and then build as big as the town will let them. Uh, and, you know, that I can see where that's not going to be necessarily a savings. 
across. And, you know, from the, since the 1950s, I think the square feet, uh, amount of square footage per person has tripled in single family homes, which, you know, maybe we need the space. I don't know. I find <laughs> that uh, there's an awful lot of clutter in people's houses. Well, you know, we need it because the people who sell furniture and other things need the money. <laughs> So we buy more to fill up the space because we have more space. So that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, we just keep the economy going that way. We're, we're yeah, continuing. that's one way to do it. Yep. So if I was a remodeler, or even a builder for that matter, that you know was already in business and kind of moving along, and I thought, you know what, um, I want to put green in. Let's start with sort of the negative part of it, what might be one of the biggest mistakes I would make in trying to add green to my portfolio or to go straight green? What, what might be something I should avoid doing? And then maybe give us something like, what should I definitely do? You know, I think um, one thing to avoid is, uh, or to try to, um, try to get away from is, is not having a it's, it's, it's not having a particularly clear idea of what green means to you. You're not having a quantifiable standard. Um, but I, you know, I think, you know, the, you know, initially in the early days of green, it, it was about reducing energy usage. Um, and then it became a lot about product selection. You know, the, that's where the bamboo flooring came in and the, the recycled tile, recycled material tile. And, and those, those are kind of uh, distractions. I mean, not the energy saving part, but the product selection is. But I think, you know, really fundamentally, uh, what green is about these days is reducing the carbon footprint of homes. And you reduce the carbon footprint um, by making the house more efficient and the appliances more efficient. So anything you can do uh, to achieve that is useful um, and uh, important to measure. You, um, you, uh, you also try to select um, materials that are, have lower embodied carbon than other materials. For instance, uh, cellulose insulation actually stores carbon, whereas uh, spray foam, for instance, is, uh, has a pretty high embodied carbon, and particularly uh, if you pick uh, spray foam with the wrong blowing agent. Um, and then, you know, finally, you're you're really trying to move houses off the gas grid over time, fundamentally, because the electrical grid is getting greener and greener, and the gas grid is not. So um, switching from fossil fuel appliances to heat pumps, converting a gas range to an induction cooktop, um, that sort of thing. Paul, if we have a, a new remodeler that's new in business, uh, do you think right now it's um, what is the biggest hindrance if there is one in green building? Is, is it cost and selling the cost of green building, or is it the overall knowledge of of how to do it properly? Um, I think it's um, or both. <laughs> well, I you know it's uh, I'm hesitant to call it knowledge because an awful lot of very effective green techniques don't require uh, really fundamentally different knowledge from what a, a good remodeler has already. I, I would call it an awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, um, 
have a blower door test done on a project, you know, major renovation before, after the installation's done, before the drywall goes up, hire, hire a HERS rater to come in just to do a blower door test. And uh, your crew will learn so much about what an air barrier really is. <laughs> you know, in, in the early days, we would do the, um, we do the blower door test and we, we bought a theatrical fog machine. So we'd fog up the house and, and pressurize the house with the blower door. And then we'd just stand outside and see where the fog came out. And, and it, was, it was pretty hard to argue with that fog coming out. <laughs> and it also made it pretty, pretty intuitive. Yeah, so yeah. I, you know, I think becoming friends with a good, uh, a good blower door operator uh, will help you understand that there's a lot of things your crew can do to make a house more efficient that doesn't really cost much at all. You know, it's just, it's just that awareness. Um, then I think an, another, uh, another barrier is fear. You know, there is still a sense within the industry that if I do hire that blower door operator and I do have my crew seal up all those leaks, I'm going to end up with, uh, with moisture problems and uh, indoor air quality problems. Mm -hmm. And certainly if you do it badly, uh, there is a risk of that. But it's possible to... Um, to you know, the tighter the house is, the easier it is for whatever ventilation system you put in to be effective, to, to operate in the way you intend it to. So your, your, uh, your ventilation system, um, if, it's, if it's well engineered, is, is going to become a better ventilation system um, by virtue of your having sealed up the envelope. Um, so, um, so awareness and then overcoming fear uh, and then, you know, just going online, you know, there's some tremendous online resources. Um, you know, greenbuildingadvisor.com is, is just a fantastic site uh, for, for good information and also very lively conversations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it almost feels a little bit like um, it's, it's just about details. You know, it's just about because I'm just sitting here thinking like, all of us do caulking or of some kind, but maybe we don't take enough time to make sure it really, really works. And then, you know, insulation is the same way. Do we do it properly and follow the details versus just kind of throwing it in and going like, you know, look, it'll look good for my house or something crazy like that, you know? Yeah, not, you know, it's not, um, it's not, uh, it's not under, it's not, um, having the feedback loops that tell you whether you've done a good job right. or not. You know, the blower door is a fantastic feedback loop, yeah. fantastic quality control mechanism. You know, infrared camera can be just a fantastic quality control mechanism in terms right. of evaluating whether your, your insulation is, um, is, you know, is properly installed. And uh, you learn from that. Um, you know, you don't have those feedback loops. You keep doing the same thing over and over again. And, and you're sure you're doing a good job, but maybe you aren't. Yeah. You're going back to, uh, you know, measuring the pre and post energy usage, yeah. household energy usage really tells you how well you did. I mean, you have to be prepared to kind of put yourself out there. It's, you know, it's a little, yeah. it feels a little exposed to, to do follow-ups like that, but it's the only way you're going to learn. Yeah. I went to a conference in uh, Wisconsin couple of years ago and one of the speakers made a point of the fact that Americans won't throw away something that's still working and so the part of the trouble with uh, changing like 
incandescent lights over to LEDs and that sort of thing is that we just won't throw away light bulbs. And I came home and I threw away all of our incandescent light bulbs and put LEDs in. And I'll tell you, I, I watched the electric bill go way down. I mean, it was incredible. It was, it was just as clear as day that that was a, a different way to go. Yeah, we have, I have this great graph. Uh, on some of our projects, we'll do like circuit by circuit monitoring of the actual energy usage. And there was one house that had something like 16 recess cans in the kitchen and, and breakfast area. Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, the, the wife was really resistant to the LEDs. So I, I told her, you know, look, let me just try. So I, I went to our supplier and I bought 16 LED bulbs, changed them all over on a Friday afternoon, and then um, watched the graph. You know, the graph, it was like a, uh, on, on that circuit, it was an 80% reduction in energy usage. But then by Sunday night, it was back up to where it had been before. So I got in touch with them on Monday morning. It turns out she had hated the LEDs and put the incandescents back in. <laughs> so I said, fine, let me talk to my supplier. I talked to my supplier, became better educated about LEDs and the difference between LEDs. And then I said, okay, I'm going to put, let's just put half of them in. So I put half of them in uh, the next Friday and the energy, you know, went down by half. And then by Sunday night, it was back down 20% because she had, she had loved the LED bulbs so much that she took out the other half of the incandescent and put in the rest of the LEDs that I had left. What so that picture, that picture graph tells a great story. That's it. That, that is, is so, so great. So what are, um, are there any kind of myths about green building that have kind of popped up that you, that you hear, you know, kind of spouted out there like they're, their uh, cast in stone, you know, can't be denied, but they're not really true? Um, I think the, uh, the idea that you, that um, it's uh, bad practice to tighten up a house. Okay. Is that I alluded to before. I mean, you can do damage by tightening up a house and not correcting a chronic water problem, for instance, or not correcting a, uh, a bad ventilation system. But it's, um, it's a, uh, that's a myth. Another myth is that, I mean, we hear, still hear this a lot in the Northeast where we're, we're you know, predominantly heating climate. Another myth is that air source heat pumps are, are not gonna heat a house in our winters, but that's, that's just not true. You know, we're putting in systems that that deliver good usable heat, even down to uh, outdoor temperatures of minus 17 Fahrenheit. Is that because the systems are just so much better now than they used to be, or is it? Yeah, it, yeah. the, uh, the uh, variable speed um, systems with, uh, with better um, uh, turn down ratios, you know, where they can, they can be extremely efficient, even at, even at partial loads. Yeah. Looking for a fresh perspective of the moment education that suits both your business vision for 2021 and your wallet? The 31st Annual Remodeling Show has been reimagined online November 16th through the 18th. Register now for free to gain access to over 20 on-demand and live sessions for remodelers. With topics ranging from effective production, hands-on technical application, to design techniques you can apply to your very next project. It all kicks off soon. Learn more and save your virtual seat at remodelingshow.com. So 
is is there any kind of general rule in terms of and again it's hard hard with different levels of construction but just say a nice well built house or a well done uh renovation versus a renovation or a house that's built to green or very, very low energy consumption. Is there any kind of rule of thumb as to the cost difference of those? If you were, you know, like if you were talking to a client and they couldn't figure out if they want to go that way or this way, and you could say, you know what, for an extra 15%, you know, we can do it like this and it'll save you this much on your energy or is there any kind of rule of thumb for that? Um, not really, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. um, it's, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, most remodeling decisions are, uh, are emotional decisions. You know, if, if homeowners were completely rational, 90% of my business would dry up overnight. <laughs> so it's, it's just, um, it's where, where, are your values as a company and where are the homeowners values? Right. Is there, if there's alignment, if your values are, okay, we really want to reduce the carbon footprint of this house and those are the homeowners values, then you'll find the money yep. to, to, to do it. And it's not, you know, as soon as you start going to uh, payback, you know, how many years will this pay back? Then um, you've, uh, You've, uh, you're applying a different standard to the emotional decision about carbon reduction than you are to the emotional decision about a custom shower enclosure versus a fiberglass one. Right. Because, you know, as the saying goes, nobody, nobody asks about the payback on the uh, granite countertops versus <laughs> the, the Corian. Not, anyway, I have yeah. Corian in my house. I just want you to know. <laughs> that, that may date me a little bit, but I love the material. <laughs> So before we go to bonus by whimsy, one, <laughs> one, one more uh, question, and that is, is there anything about the marketing that helps attract clients to you that, um, you know, do want to spend some money to make sure that there's not only payback, but the, the climate is uh, taken care of and the eco ecology and all that kind of stuff? Is there any kind of marketing that you could recommend? or things to include in the marketing that if someone was going to go down this road that they might get a jump on it and not have to learn the hard way? You know, we have, we have gotten to the point with our marketing where pretty much only people who really want the high performance retrofits are calling us, which is a very right. strong position to be in, no matter what your niche is. Right. If, you, if you're perceived as the contractor who kind of owns that niche, that's a great position to be in. And, and with most niches, and certainly with the high-performance retrofit niche, the uh, the marketing really is networking. You know, uh, joining the uh, getting on the board of the local environmental organization, joining the task force that's advising the local government or the state government, being on the you know the uh, the the building standards committee of of uh, various organizations, getting out there and you know, identifying who the, the community environmental groups are and getting out there and, and volunteering to present at their monthly meetings. Um, there's just, there's just no, no better way to, uh, 
to start to get into that niche and own that niche then by the, the human connection. I mean, you can, yes, your, your website definitely needs to support the message, but, but it's, it's really the, even these days, uh, <laughs> When, when there are fewer opportunities to get in front of people in person, it's uh, that, that networking is, is absolutely essential. And, and to be prepared to give a lot of free advice. Yeah. Um, go, you know, go to offer, you know, go to um, somebody's asking for, you know, a, a, a major retrofit, comfort retrofit, efficiency retrofit, carbon reduction retrofit, go and talk to them. Even if you know you're not going to get the job. Spend, spend an hour talking to them, uh, giving them good advice, and, and the word spreads. Um, no substitute for that. Cool. All right. So, you know, for years and years and years, I've been associated with the lead carpenter system and that sort of thing. And one of the big parts of that is, is a bonus or not bonus. And probably every trade show I've ever been to, somebody will ask, you know, should I pay a bonus? And uh, you had this article, I believe it was in JLC. If not, it was remodeling. Um, just, it was called Bonus by Whimsy. And there was just this great story in there about an incident in your company. And uh, if you could relate that story and, and why that made perfect sense to you, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, just, you know, first a little background there. I have, um, uh, you know, I've been a member of a number of uh, peer review groups, including Remodelers Advantage. So I've had an opportunity to talk with a lot of employees. And I don't think I've ever heard an employee able to explain its company's bonus plan to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it comes across as bonus by whimsy, um, no matter how much thought or math went into it. So I, I just you know, I came to realize, you know, two things. One, you've got to, um, you've got to have a compensation plan in place that makes sense completely independent of bonuses, but then you still have to be willing to bonus people and you bonus people for a couple reasons. You bonus them to change bad habits. You know, if they can all get down to one visit to the lumberyard per week, they each get 25 in cash or whatever. Um, <laughs> But in this particular case that Tim's referring to, uh, I had a lead carpenter who I had uh, uh, set up on for a job with a, a client who was, I knew was going to be trouble because, I mean, the, you know, the salesperson always knows the client's going to be <laughs> trouble um, long before anybody else. But for some reason, the salesperson frequently hangs in there, still haven't quite figured that out. So I, I knew it was going to be trouble. And uh, the stress was just building up and up and up on this particular lead carpenter. And we, we, were, at the, the, we were at a weekly meeting together and uh, the, the homeowner said something and the lead carpenter just blew up. And, um, and it was, uh, I think she was blown up at me as much as anybody. Um, and uh, I had not provided you know, enough opportunities for her to vent. I had not provided enough support on that job. And so we went out to the car afterwards and I pulled the checkbook out. This was a few years ago when I still had a checkbook in the car. <laughs> and, and, and I wrote, I wrote a hundred dollar checkout and I said, I am really sorry that I have set you up this way and not provided you support going forward. I'm going to do that. And here's a hundred dollars for not quitting on me on the spot. <laughs> 
Well, that's about the way I remember it. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, I think, you know, it just illustrates, I, I think just for the listeners, I think it just illustrates what a, a great business owner uh, this man has been to, to think like most of us would be mad at that lead carpenter and get, you know, kind of blow our top probably. And he's looking at it realistically, didn't support. And, uh, and, you know, maybe it could have been much worse. So you get a bonus for uh, holding back a little bit, huh? <laughs> it was, you know, it was, I, it was uh, a tangible sign of profound appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. So thank you so much, Paul, for being here. And um, this has been great information. And uh, I wish you all the best as you get into a new career uh, a- after the, the business is uh, transferred over. Uh, thanks very much, Tim. I really appreciate it. Um, let's let's do this again sometime, guys. That'd be fun. Great. Thank you. Great. All right. Thank you, Paul. Bye. Take care. Take thanks, care. Steve. Tim, we've uh, today has just been filled with so much information, and this tops it off. I, I love talking to somebody like Paul, who's just so knowledgeable, not only with business, but perfectly mixed with the building science portion as well. Yeah, you know, this it's it again, it's one of those areas that I'm not as versed in as a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. But I just keep getting I keep getting the message that in many cases it's just the little things that you do that can make a big difference. When he was talking about the blower door test and the fog machine, mm-hmm. I was envisioning, you know, just standing outside and seeing all the places that didn't get sealed up. Yeah. And, and, you know, when the air outside is cold, it's coming in those same places oh, yeah. where that fog's going out. And so getting those all sealed up and helping to illustrate that is, uh, is pretty phenomenal to me. And him pointing out um, some of the, I guess, hurdles, uh, fear being one. And, you know, I think that's the misconceptions. I mean, I, I think you mentioned it. I was taught houses need to breathe. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's I always just it. leave the doors open. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but no, I mean, you know, with just various vapor barriers, basements, bathrooms, wherever they're going to be. Um, you know, there's just a lot of thoughts either way to not make them too tight. You know, so here, here's something that was brand new to me was his five, five things to measure. Yeah. Now, the energy usage is obvious. That's, um, you know, everybody understands that. But then, well, he said water, but I'm pretty sure he meant like moisture and moisture barriers, things like that. Durability yeah. is another, you know, again, it makes perfect sense. But I, I personally, I never thought about it that way. Because if it's not durable, what are you doing? Using more resources yep. to, to fix it. And then air quality, which of course I'm, I'm familiar with. But then the whole idea of size. And trying, and the interesting thing that he mentioned there was in his business, if they can do the design and get it worked out, they try not to add space to a home. And, and that is just an interesting thing that I had never, never thought about. So I've told people over and over again that one of the reasons I love these podcasts is I am always learning something, something new always comes up. And I get so excited about it, even if it's a little thing like that. So, you know, it's just I'm just a little bit smarter as a result of being here. Awesome. Well, we want to thank Paul for joining us. 
today on the podcast, and we want to thank you for listening to another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. And remember, at The Tim Fowler Show, we're working hard to eliminate it is what it is from your vocabulary. This has been another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast-track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com slash consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.